And we're going to talk about things that unite us, um, coming together as a community. I'm going to start with a joke today, a good mean joke. I have tweaked it a little. I've tweaked it slightly for a Sunday morning crowd. Um, I, I can try to do it in my best main accent. Would that be good? There's this old fella. He's sitting in the kitchen on a Sunday morning, reading the Sunday paper, just catching up on the news. And he hears this gunshot out in the backyard. Now, it's Sunday morning. Any fool knows that there's no hunting on the Lord's Day. So he's wondering what's going on. He gets up, puts on his boots, and heads out to the backyard. He's walking out there, and he sees this guy climbing over the back fence with a gun in hand and all decked out in his hunting gear. He doesn't know what's going on. He walks out there. Finally gets close enough. He says, hey, you, what are you doing out there? He says, uh, well, I'm hunting. He says, what are you hunting? He says, I'm, I'm duck hunting. I'm, and I shot a duck, and I'm going to retrieve it. And he says, uh, well, that's, that's my duck. He says, no, no, you don't get it. The duck flew out from the pond. I shot it, and it fell onto your land. I'm just going to uh, retrieve it. And the guy in the farmer says, well, it's on my property now. It's my duck. And this guy starts whining and complaining about how he came up from Massachusetts and he maxed out his visa card at L.L. Bean and he got all this gear and he wants to go home and hadn't caught anything all, all week long and he wants to show his friends. And this guy says, oh, you're from Massachusetts, are you? And he says, yes, sir. He says, uh... Yeah, you, you spent all your money at L. Bean and got your gear and all that? And he says, yeah, that's what I did. He says, well, the problem is it's on my property, so it's my duck. And this guy keeps whining and complaining. He says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll settle this the way we do things up here in Maine, the old country way. And he says, all right, I, you know, I really want that duck. He says, what do we do? He says, well, we stand here and we kick each other in the gut until someone gives up. <clears throat> and uh, the guy says, I don't, that doesn't sound good. I don't think I want to do that. He says, geez, you, you drove all the way up here from Massachusetts, right? He says, yeah. He says, you spent all your money at L.L. Bean, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. He says, you want something to show for it back when you go home to Massachusetts, right? Yeah. He says, well, sounds to me like you want to do this. <laughs> the guy says, all right, if that's what we got to do. And the farmer says, all right, I'll go first. And he winds up and kicks him in the gut. <laughs> all the air goes, you know, he drops like a sack of grain to the ground. And he's coughing and wheezing. And finally, after about five minutes, the guy gets up, looks at the farmer and says, all right, I guess it's my turn. The farmer says, you know what? Go ahead and keep the duck. <laughs> now, <laughs> why is that so funny? Now, in a typical joke, the end 
is unexpected, so that's one reason, right? That's the way jokes work. Oh, I didn't see that coming. I told this to my friends down in South Carolina a couple weeks ago, and they, they loved it. And one guy said, oh, I didn't see that ending coming. What's the other reason it's so funny? Because the guy's from Massachusetts. Because <laughs> the guy's from Massachusetts, right? So there's this underlying feeling up here in Maine that people from Massachusetts, or maybe we go as far as New York, and all their wealth and all that they're going to spend is not good for us <clears throat> up here in Maine. And so we like a story where they kind of get it in the end. Years ago, I was doing a study. <clears throat> I was writing my thesis on uh, Genesis chapter 16 with Hagar and Sarah and the tension between them. And I started doing this research and I realized that in Maine, we like to tell stories like that about people from Massachusetts. Where they are the butt of the joke. They get theirs in the end. Um, sometimes that happens in Maine with people from French Canada, right? So when I lived, I thought about when I lived in the Scranton area for a year, uh, the jokes were about people from West Virginia. And when I lived in Ohio, the butt of the jokes were people from Kentucky. And so for kicks and giggles, I called my brother who lives in Missouri. I said, who are the butt of the jokes in Missouri? Oh, people from Arkansas. Arkies. Now, I went to Canada once, and I, and I, I, I didn't know uh, my relatives, family that well, never been up there. So I thought, I'm going to tell them this joke, but I'm going to make the American the butt of the joke, and just so that, you know, I'm not causing any, you know, problems here, and try to get in on their good side. And I told the joke, and it just fell flat. And... Uh, I think they were expecting the Canadian city to be the butt of the joke. I was just trying to turn it around. But the, the real reason is that in New Brunswick, the butt of the joke is Newfoundlands, Newfies, Newfies, Arkies, you know. So I'm using slight slurs here, some mild slurs. But in all those cases, right, the butt of the joke is someone who is from away, but they're not from far away. They live right over the border. They're the ones. I mean, we, when we are with people that we don't necessarily know, they have different opinions, have different culture, all that, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But when they live right over the border, that makes us even more nervous. I saw on Facebook this week about housing prices. And as soon as I read it, I thought it's because people are out of town or from away are buying up all our land. And that's why all the land is going up in price. That's what I assumed. I have never researched that. I don't know if that's actually true. Right? But, yeah, I think I heard other comments that in that direction as well from our church. But it was interesting because that was immediately where my mind went. I, in fact, I heard someone on our street, a household, and uh, this was last year, and the people across the street said, we were looking at that house and it got snatched out from under us from people uh, out of state. People out of state bought it. I was like, oh, man. And I'm thinking, Massachusetts, New York. And I'm like, where are they from? And they said, New Hampshire. <laughs> and I'm like, that doesn't really count. That's not the same 
That joke wouldn't be as funny if the guy was from New Hampshire or from Vermont. Right? So we have this thing where we don't always get along. And if it spans across all these different states, and we see it in the Bible between Hagar and Sarah, we see it in the Bible when Jesus and his disciples pass through Samaria, and they don't welcome him, and the disciples are like, let's call down fire from heaven. And Jesus is like, settle down, relax, we're not going to call down fire from heaven just because they didn't let us spend the night there. But there's something about this that's a human thing. After the past year, we have seen division in many, many areas in our nation. Um, politics, immigrants, minorities, uh, bordering nations, and the immigration issue. Um, <clears throat> and so it's safe to assume that this is not just a main thing. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. And so our series this morning is going to, or that we're starting this morning, is going to be on looking at the unity that we have in Christ, looking at community and how we um, are called together. And I think that the, the gospel message that many of us have received isn't completely the full picture. And I've said this before. I'm going to jump into a text that I, I've done before. If you've been at North Harbor for years, you've heard me talk on this before. Um, what I have found over the years is that sometimes it takes five times to hear it before it clicks. But this issue of reconciliation between people groups, whether it's ethnicities, um, political opinions, whatever it is, this is so central to the gospel message that I think we miss it. Because typically what we hear is accept Jesus as your personal Savior so that you can go to heaven after you die. But at the forefront of the book of Romans is this issue of reconciliation between groups that were once hostile towards one another. At the heart of Ephesians is the same message. At the heart of Colossians is the same message. It's very much present in the book of Galatians, and it's very much present in the book of James, although it tends to be more rich and poor in that book. It's at the heart of Revelation. At the end, you see a vision of a city where the gates are open all the time. That's because people from Massachusetts are welcome. <laughs> Newfies are welcome. Archies are welcome. All these people groups, everyone's welcome, and no one is barred from this heavenly city where everyone is welcome. So this idea of reconciliation, when we hear it, we think, me and God need to get right. And I would suggest that that is, we need a much bigger vision of what reconciliation, salvation, judgment, eternal life mean. It's that we are united. We come together. And so here's, here's my statement this morning. One cannot be reconciled to God without being reconciled to others. And I have to put one caveat there. There are times where we are working and working and working to reconcile with one another. That's not what I'm, and the other person is unwilling. That's not what I'm referring to. 
but that the gospel message inherently is being reconciled with one another. And one cannot be reconciled to others without being reconciled to God, because we know how hard that is. We need God. We are a broken people, Amen. and if we try to do it on our own, it's not going to work. We're going to mess it up. So before we get into this passage, I want to do another story. This is one that you know very well from the Bible. It's called the prodigal son. And here's the story. Two brothers live in the house. Their father, the younger brother, decides that he wants to take all of his inheritance and move far away. He comes to his senses and he decides to return home. The father runs out to meet him. The younger brother is also outside. Once the younger brother comes home, the older brother is outside and does not want to go into the party. And the father goes out to find the older son. Now, on one level, this is a great story about the individual being reconciled to God. And sometimes it's good to see which do I see myself in, the younger brother that needs to return or the older brother who is judgmental and doesn't want to doesn't want to see that happen that party happen on another level Jesus knows the mission he understands what lies ahead of him he knows his biblical history and he knows his audience and he tells this story and his audience can pick up on the subtle clues that this is a story about non-Jewish people who have lived far away and Jewish people who have worked at home so hard close to the Father and don't want to see non-Jewish people come hunting in their state. They don't want to see people from Massachusetts. They don't want to see people from Arkansas. They don't want to see that younger brother. It's a story about groups being reconciled. And his audience would have known this because the younger son went home where he was far away, lived far away in a distant land, not Israel. He ate food that was fit for pigs, fit for pigs. Gentiles eat pork. Jewish people do not. They would have picked up on those clues. And if it was a Jewish audience that was very adamant about their beliefs, they would have had a problem with that story, that this son would be welcomed home and all the rights bestowed back on this person. Okay, so remember that story as we read this these passages out of Ephesians. When we get to Ephesians, our thesis statement, the central statement of the book, is found in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And it says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, regarding the Messiah, which is to fulfill his own good plan. So here's the plan. Oh, it says it there. Here's the plan. <laughs> At this time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So that's interesting because typically when we lead with sharing our faith with others, that's not a central statement that we use. He is here. He is, his plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth. All things. And so it's interesting what it doesn't say. It doesn't say accept Jesus as your personal Savior. 
doesn't say you owe, you got a you know personal ticket to heaven after you die. Those things are fine. I'm not putting. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't teach those. I'm just saying that it's a very narrow piece of the pie. What God wants to see reconciled is all things, all things. So that's our central statement, and we begin to see how this is fleshed out when we get into chapter two. And we're moving into the heartbeat of this whole book. Everything is leading up to this point. Now remember our two sons. He says, Paul writes to the Ephesians. Ephesians is a non-Jewish church, a Gentile church in Ephesus. Paul is Jewish, uh, a follower of Jesus. And he writes, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Sounds like the older son, very proud of his work with his father at home all those years. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God. You were that younger son. And now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. And so at that point we stop and we sing amazing grace. God has rescued us. That that spells out exactly what we feel is kind of the essential gospel message that we have been brought near except that Paul keeps going <laughs> that is not the central that's not the height of the whole thing he's moving into the main point of what the gospel message is about for Christ himself verse 14 has brought peace to us he united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. A large part of that law is to separate us. If I am Jewish and I don't eat pork, I can't sit down to fellowship with John who eats pork. That table fellowship is very important. It's very symbolic. That if I'm able to sit down with John and have a meal, it means I'm okay with John and John's okay with me, that we are at that same table. And so this Jewish law, part of it, is designed to create a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying that that has been broken down in Christ. <clears throat> he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. So reconciliation. If we're going to talk about what Jesus' community looks like, it is a community that is reconciled 
with one another. That we find unity in our diversity. That we love one another. Reconciliation is bringing back to a state of harmony. And what state of harmony was that? When were they united, Jews and Gentiles? Genesis. Oh, there you go, John. Thank you. Yeah. Here's a garden. Take care of it. Tend it. Keep it. And as soon as we leave God behind, as soon as we move beyond that one commandment, don't eat from this tree, we have blame shifting. It was her fault. (laughs) She's the one that gave it to me. And you begin to see that separation happen in humanity. And it just spirals and continues as you read along about Cain and Abel and Lamech and Noah and all of that. To bring back, to reconcile both groups to God. So this is at the heart of the book of Ephesians, this idea of reconciling groups, the gospel message. In the earliest years I was a Christian, I never heard that. And the reason is, is we flatten out all these these, uh, pronouns, and we think when he says we, he's talking about we Christians, and when he thinks... When he says you, we think you Christians, so that's me too. And we flatten out the we's and the you's. When it's really in the beginning, he's saying we Jews and you Gentiles. And it makes it very clear here at the beginning. Because he says it, you Gentiles were once outsiders. Now you've been brought near. So he's dealing with groups. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. And peace to the Jews who were near Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. We are all invited to that party. Everyone is invited in. Jesus is the cornerstone. Yeah, he's going to talk about that. And what is he doing there? Well, let's just move on. Great segue. (laughs) So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple or a home, same word, for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of the dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So what he's talking about is the building of a temple. That's what you do. You first lay the cornerstone, that's Jesus. You get a foundation, that's the prophets. And then it's both of us. Jews and Gentiles are making up the brickwork. And what's in the middle of the temple? Jesus. Yeah, the Spirit of God. In Judaism, you don't put an image there. That's called idolatry. What is the image in the middle of the temple? It's us. We are the image. In the image of God. So when we're divided, it's a temple that is divided. And spirit cannot live there. So, we're all Gentiles. What's the big deal here, right? (laughs) That's not quite where we're going. We know that we're all, at least I don't think we have anyone with Jewish descent here. But the issue is this. We have these inherent biases because everyone laughed at the Massachusetts guy who got kicked in the gut. We know that story. We have these biases and they don't just fall along state lines. It's been a rough year for division. And the church has a stellar opportunity in front of us 
in a country that has been so divided to show what unity looks like to the world. And in many cases, I haven't seen it in the church. I don't mean specifically North Harbor. I think North Harbor has some work to do in this area. But in the church in general, there's tons of work to do. And so part of this series is to look at what what is Jesus' community? What does it look like? I mean, think of the people that Jesus calls to himself. I wrote a few ideas down here. He had... He had zealots and tax collectors. Zealots wanted to fight Rome. Go to battle. Go to war. Pick up your sword and fight. God will be with us. Tax collectors, like Matthew, the disciple Matthew, was someone who was Jewish who collected taxes on behalf of Rome. So Jesus has a zealot in his group, and he's got a tax collector. There must have been some fists thrown around the campfire a few times. Those two. He had fishermen. The apostle apostle Paul, who comes along later as an apostle, is probably the equivalent of a PhD in our world. So he had fishermen who didn't follow the rabbi. They were going to go do the family business. And PhDs. And they, they had their moments, those two. They had doubters. Thomas. Thomas the doubter. And they had Peter, who probably thought more of himself at times. Maybe overconfident at times. So, I think even in our little church, this is true for the church in general, but I think maybe in our little church this might be true. Trumpers and supporters of Biden, unvaccinated and vaccinated, Border control, border reform, pacifists, military, America the beautiful, America the oppressed, citizen, alien, young, old, men, women, wealthy, poor. Our community is already looking like Jesus' ragtag group. Right? So the point is, we need to learn to come together over these issues, these political issues. On Facebook, come on, Facebook is tough. And it's because you're not sitting right in front of someone. It's because you can be somewhat anonymous. (laughs) And Jesus takes this kind of division very seriously. He says... In his first sermon, right, he says, listen, you've heard that murder, if you're caught with, if you're a murderer, you're going to be liable to judgment. But what I'm telling you is if you call someone a fool, you're liable to judgment. If we call someone a fool, if we go online and call someone a fool, (laughs) that's not the characteristic of that united, reconciled community. Does it mean we all get along? And we, or No, yeah, it does mean we all get along. Does it mean we all believe the same things? No. But the church really needs to learn how to do that because our world is really struggling with it right now. Learn how to listen. I remember a story years ago, Olympia Snow resigned. The long-term Republican Senate senator in Maine. I visited her when I was in like middle school or something down in her office, and 
And she retired. Part of the reason is people don't get along. We can't get anything done in Washington. And so the church has a stellar opportunity to not get, to not draw blows over these hot issues, but maybe sit down and listen to one another. If we can do that, I believe there's hope for the world because this is part of the central message of the gospel, that Jesus came to unite all things, people, all people together, to be reconciled with one another, to return to harmony with one another, not have the same opinion. That's uniformity. That's not unity. Uniformity is what was attempted in Nazi Germany. That's what uniformity is. Unity is that we can be Democrat and Republican and sit down and, and talk without being sharp with one another. To have different opinions on what should happen at the border and all those things and vaccines and all that stuff. Can we do that? Yes. Yes. Okay.